I'm the associate pastor here at Cape Bible Chapel. It's good to see all of you here. I hope that you've been here over the last several weeks, several months, as Pastor Dan has been preaching through the book of James. And this is the series we have on putting feet to our faith. And so if you've been here and you heard a bunch of that, I really hope the last couple weeks you were here, because he spent a lot of time in James in chapter 2, in verses 14 to 26, specifically talking about the relationship between faith and works, and asking some hard questions. What is the process we go through to be saved? Is there anything we could do to earn our salvation? What work would we need to do? And I think it answered some really, really important questions. And it's a great and incredibly important thing to be able to understand when people would ask you, hey, what do you think about that, that you would be able to answer no. I know there are people who believe that the Apostle Paul and James disagree in this area. I know Martin Luther famously was one. He thought the writings of James actually contradicted the writings of Paul. If you look at Paul's statement on faith in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, this is what he said. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And you look at the book of James, you look in chapter 2, verse 14, and James says this. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Faith that would produce no works. And then in chapter 2, verse 24, James says, You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. So if you've missed the last couple weeks, go back <laughs> and listen on the website. Listen to Pastor Danny's messages because I think he does a great job of explaining what James is trying to say, this concept of works and faith. I think Paul's pretty clear to the church in Ephesus. And there, there are. There are differences between Paul and James, but it's not that they disagree about faith. I guarantee you that. They're actually writing to different audiences. Paul is writing to a Gentile audience, and James is writing to a Jewish audience. They write at slightly different times. James is probably the very first New Testament book. It was written before the Gospels, probably written somewhere around A.D., like 46 to 49. And Paul writes a little later than that. And a lot of his real key treatments of faith are even later. They're in the early A.D. 60s when he's writing the prison epistles. And when Paul writes, he's talking about faith as the basis of our salvation. But when James writes, he's talking about faith as the evidence of our salvation. And I think one of the things that's really key is that when Paul writes, he's attacking legalism. This idea of trying to earn salvation through our own merit or by keeping external laws. But when James writes, he's attacking people who think, hey, the quality of your life, how you looked as a Christ follower, that's irrelevant. It really doesn't matter. Evidence of faith is the key point for James throughout the book. Even in the terminology he uses, actually in that verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 24, the Greek word for justification he uses is the word dikeiu. And used in its verb form, it means to show, to produce evidence of justification. When Paul writes, he quotes from Genesis 15, 6 in his writings, both in Galatians and in Romans, because it explains the proper understanding of this process of justification through God's grace. Genesis 15, 6 says this, Then he believed in the Lord, that he is Abraham. And he, capital H, God, reckoned it to him as righteousness. Well, James quotes Genesis 15, 6 as well, and, and I think it's to show that Abraham's belief was imputed to him for righteousness, but James leads with Genesis 22 and the story of Abraham and Isaac because that provides evidence of faith. Abraham's faith shows up in his works. If you look at the entirety of it, the big picture, I think it's really, really clear that James and Paul don't disagree. A person who has genuine saving faith is supposed to follow through. You're supposed to be able to see that in their lives. We are saved by God's grace through personal faith in Christ. And then we're supposed to show it. 
show evidence of that. Paul actually clearly explains this natural process right after he talks about faith and works in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. He follows up with this in 2.10. For we are his workmanship. Saved by faith, but we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. We're supposed to be doing these good works. If we have a relationship with God, we have the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, and showing that fruit is what will make us look different to the world around us. I think real clearly the disciples got this. The people in the first century church got this. They understood what it meant to truly live differently. And I think James totally got this when he was writing in chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. He said, Therefore put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility. Receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. There's no work in that. Just receiving, appropriating. He said, But then prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And that's a challenging thing. I was at a conference recently. It was a great conference. And one of the pastors there really challenged me. And, and all the guys, we took all our staff guys and the Nehemiah guys. And he said, hey, what we need in the church today is less Bible study. Because <laughs> it sounds kind of weird up front, doesn't it? But, but hear me on this. He said, what we need is less Bible study and more Bible doing. And that really resonated with me because I think that's true. It's not enough to know the Bible. It's really not. It's not enough to know about it. We have to know it. We have to know it in a way that there's evidence in our lives that we do, that we're different. That's what both James and Paul are talking about. And I thought it was a great example last week because Dan talked about the lives of Abraham and then Rahab. And they're two people who are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 in the Faith Hall of Fame. The author of Hebrews lists this incredible passage, and it's not people that we might think, you know, who are known for their faith. That's where they get their identity. And Dan shared, hey, just on the surface, if you took Abraham and Rahab and looked at their works, then you might say, okay, there's a murderer and somebody who's committed treason. So that's not a good way to get identity. He said, what we need to do is look at their faith. And so that got me thinking really hard, that message last week, about where do I get my identity? Is it from my faith? If somebody comes and asks me, hey, you know, who are you? How would I answer? What do I want to be defined by? You see that commercial uh, several months ago. Um, guy's new to the neighborhood, I guess, and they're having some kind of neighborhood block party. And he goes up to a guy. He doesn't know where anybody lives. He goes, hey, which house is yours? He goes, oh, it's one with a truck over there. And immediately he asks the follow-up question. I think that we all ask, well, so what do you do? And maybe guys are worse at this than girls, I think. But we automatically say what we do for a living. We say our profession, our occupation, as if that's who we are. I loved this commercial because the guy didn't answer, but in his mind, if you remember, he gets all these flashes, all these images, the stuff that he does, and he's doing a big cannonball, and he's singing in the car with his kids on vacation, and he's doing some work, and he's hauling his motorcycle, and he's playing chess with his dad, and he's having candlelight dinner with his wife, and he never answers. Because all those things that he did, that's part of who he is. I've been so guilty of this my entire life. I know that I have. People will come hey, what do you do? And, and when I was young, I worked at a sporting goods store and owned and managed a sporting goods store. And so I was the Howard's guy. And then when I got called into ministry, I was like, well, I was the Young Life guy. And I go around town now and people introduce me, oh, you, that's my pastor, that's Pastor James. And that's, none of those things are bad to be known for. I, at different points in my life, I've been glad to be that guy. But here's the thing, and, and I'll tell you because I want you to hold me accountable on this. Here's what I want to be known for. Oh, that's James. He's a Christ follower. And then I want all the stuff, whatever I do, to be evidence, to be my identity of my faith in Christ. 
And here's the, the sad truth. I don't think I do that so well. I know there are times that I don't. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you're following along, you can go to your version app or whatever. In the Pew Bibles in front of you, it's page 214 in the Old Testament. As a family, we're reading through 1 Samuel right now. And so this week, we got to the middle of 17, and we're reading the story of David and Goliath. And here's the deal. You've probably heard that story a bunch. If you grew up in the church, you've heard that story a whole lot. But God showed me something in it this week that I had never seen before. And I think it's because I was praying and thinking about this message this weekend. If you remember Goliath, he's the huge Philistine champion, and he keeps coming out and taunting the Israelites. He's trying to provoke them into fighting, but they're all afraid. And so little David comes out, and, and he hears Goliath's challenge, and he responds in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 26, who's this guy? What's his identity? That's basically what he says. He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? See, David's a little ticked off. He shows up, and nobody's going to fight. And David's real sharp. He's diagnosed right away what their problem is. All the, the armies of the living God, the fighting men of Israel, have identity amnesia. They've forgotten who they are. And so they're comparing their size, each of their size, to the size of this giant. And they're scared. And David says, well, I'll go. I'll fight him. You guys are messing up on the comparison. You're confused. You're comparing his size and strength to your size and strength. Let's get this right. I'm a child of God. I'll go and fight him and I'll win. <laughs> because I'll compare the size of this puny giant to the size of my awesome God. You guys are missing this. David says, all the size, all the strength I'll ever need, I've got because I'm a child of God. He goes into the fight knowing who he is. He knows his identity, but Saul doubts him. And so David pulls him aside in verse 36. This is what he says. Your servant, David speaking of himself, has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine, he'll be just like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And so David goes and he is going to fight Goliath. And it's clear right away, Goliath, like a lot of guys, takes his identity from his work and from his size and his strength because he sees David coming and he thinks it's a joke. And he says so in verse 43. He says, am I a dog that you would come to me with sticks? And I don't know exactly what this means because it could mean Goliath is so huge and David is so tiny and dogs play with sticks and fetch him and chew on him and maybe he's making a size comparison. But I think more correctly, he sees David coming and all David has is a little slingshot. And Saul's got, or Goliath's got all the armor on and everything. And he's like, what is this? You can tell that he doesn't take it seriously. So he curses David. And then he says, well, come on, let's get this over with. And I'll kill you. And I'll leave your dead body here. And the birds and the animals will eat it. Now, pause just for a second <laughs> and stop and think. Because this is real. This isn't a movie. This really happened. And so if you were, David, and you had all this identity and you went out and this dude who's between six foot nine and nine foot six, depending on, you know, which measurement you go with, he's huge and he's got everybody scared and he says, I'll kill you and leave you here. What would you do? What would you do? I, I got to be honest, I might lose my identity there. <laughs> I just might. I don't know. But, but David doesn't. He doesn't forget who he is. And here's how he responds. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, this is incredible. Starting in verse 45, David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you've taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, 
and I'll strike you down and remove your head from you, and I'll give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel, and that this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. David goes in to fight knowing who he is. He was righteously angry at Goliath for taunting God, and he remembered all the power he had through his relationship with Christ. Little quiz, how would you do in that scenario? How do we do today? And you got to ask, well, if it's not so good, then why? Can we identify the kind of things? What are the things that make me forget to act like a Christ follower? And I think today we're walking around and we fall into these identity traps. We, we go around without a real strong sense of who we are in Christ, and, and we forget the unfathomable resources we have at our disposal. And, and then I think we totally underestimate the presence of indwelling sin in our lives. We take our sin nature far too lightly, and we don't grasp how comprehensive this battle is that goes on. And when that happens, we start to stumble, and we start to struggle, and we totally forget we're God's children. And we put all our focus on some kind of external enemy, like the men of Israel did with Goliath. Or we start to identify with the problems and the trials in our lives instead of identifying with the author of life himself. So today, uh, let's take a quick trip away from the book of James. And I want to look at a passage in Scripture that I think is one of the great who I am and who you are in Christ passages in all the Bible. And it's 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. It's on page 183 of the New Testament. The Pew Bible's there. You can follow along. Peter, of course, was one of Christ's disciples. He was kind of leader of the gang. And if you follow the course of Peter's life, you see an enormous change over the 20, 30 years we get recorded in Scripture. He started out impulsive, and he lacked compassion, and he lacked love, and he was quick to speak and quick to anger, and, and all these things. But you look over the course of his life, and you start to see him really showing evidence of fruit. He begins practically putting feet to his faith. Now, he's not perfect. He still blows it occasionally like we all do. Famously, Paul catches him struggling over freedom in Christ, and he calls him out about it. But here in 2 Peter, written about maybe 15 to 20 years after the book of James, just a few years probably after Paul has written these prison epistles, he's addressing believers who are in danger from heresy, who are in danger from false teaching. And if you pay attention here, he's talking about the very same things that James is talking about. When you have faith, what should your life look like? 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and his excellence, for by these, his calling on us, his glory, his excellence, he's granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them, by our relationship with him and these promises, we can become partakers of the divine nature. And if we do, we escape the corruption that is in the world by lust. He says, now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities, what qualities? faith, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love. This is Peter's list of the fruit of the Spirit. 
He says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, then they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now get this, he says, for he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. You're in Christ, and if you don't see these qualities, you're blind or you're short-sighted. There's a lot going on here, but I think one of the big takeaways is that sobering fact you see at the end of these verses, there are people who know Jesus who aren't productive. They show no evidence of fruit. And this is tricky. Can you call time out and you say, hold on. In the book of James, it says, if you really have faith, then you'll show evidence in your life. And so hear me on this. Peter's not contradicting James. In essence, he's agreeing with him because he's saying if you are useless, if you are unfruitful and you're in Christ, you have zero excuse. That's not what your life is supposed to look like. It's not because you don't know Jesus. He's saying you might have truly made an honest profession of faith. It's because you've forgotten who you are. You're blind and you're short-sighted. You have identity amnesia. I've been asked about this before because the way I pray, I really hadn't thought about it as I was praying, but you might have heard me pray this way before and some good friends of mine have challenged me on it. I pray, hey, God, I know I'm not the man that I'm supposed to be. I'm not the man that you would have me be. And they'll come to me and go, you know, (laughs) theologically, really, you know, aren't you the man God wants you to be? Because he's sovereign. and He's in control of all things. And, And they're right positionally, I'm as saved as I'm ever going to be. I am the man God wants me to be. But practically, in my life, i got to ask the question, am I showing evidence of a growing relationship with God? Somebody walked along behind me and videotaped my life for a week, for a month. We show up next weekend and it's the, it's the main feature showing up on the screens. Would God get all the glory out of my life? Or if somebody videotaped your life for a week? Would you want it to be seen up here on the big screen? We know people like this, or sadly, we are people like this. We say we have a relationship with God. It's by grace through faith. We say we love God with all our heart, but then we hold a grudge. Somebody we need to forgive, or they don't even know what it is. I never even told them, but I haven't forgiven them. We say we love God. We say we'll follow him anywhere. It's like our boy Peter famously did in the Scriptures. But then we won't follow him to go share Christ with our coworkers with our family we say we trust god we know he's the giver of all things but then we won't give away any of our money that he graciously gives us we won't give away any of our time to go serve in the church or in the community or in the world these are hard things we walk with god we say we trust his leadership then we don't submit to authorities that he puts in our lives listen i hear you i know that i'm the man but i'm not the man I want to be that man. Sanctification and salvation are two entirely different things. I have been saved by God's grace, so positionally, I'm the man. But as far as my process of sanctification, of becoming more and more and more like Christ, of knowing my identity, that's a work in progress. And Peter's telling me here in Scripture, you have no excuse if it doesn't look right. If I'm not putting feet to my faith, I need to get over my amnesia and remember who I am in Christ. And realize I've got no excuses. Because the passage says, if I know him, then his divine power has granted me everything I need for life and godliness. So you know what this means. If you leave the service here and you go out for brunch and Jesus Christ himself sits down with you, he's not going to give you any extra bits of information 
and the extra little tidbits of knowledge in this world where we are, Peter's saying, you've got it. You've got everything you're going to need, every resource. When we begin a relationship with God, at that moment of our salvation, we receive the Holy Spirit, the unfathomably powerful Holy Spirit. We receive His indwelling presence, and it's there to lead us and guide us and encourage us and convict us and seal us and remind us of the things Jesus has taught us. That's what we get. So Peter gives this list. Paul lists them in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23. And if you're here, we took an intentional look at every one of these this summer so we'd recognize how we're supposed to look different in the world. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. They're mine. They're yours if you walk in Christ. But here's the deal, and I don't know if you've done this before, but you go up to somebody, hey, how can I be praying for you? And they'll go, oh, would you just please pray for me to have self-control? Just please, please pray for me to have patience. I really need patience. Stop. Don't ask for that. Do you know what will happen if you ask for that and people start praying for it? You'll end up in the line at Walmart with the new checker. You'll end up at the license bureau last in line and everybody else forgot their paperwork because God will be sitting and laughing at you. <laughs> he asked for patience. <laughs> Watch this. <laughs> we have those things. Those things are already ours. I think what happens is when we pray for it, it just underscores this idea of what Peter's saying. We're short-sighted. We've forgotten who we are. The fruit's not missing. It's in our lives. We're just blind to it. So if we take the chance and we examine our lives and we see that we're ineffective, does that mean we lost the fruit of the Spirit in our lives? Or is it more correct that we're like the fighting men of Israel? We're staring at Goliath and all of a sudden we get identity amnesia. We take our eyes off Jesus and all we can see are our own problems. And boy, I could sure use some more self-control for my problem. I could sure use some more joy in my life. We have it. We have it. It's who we are in Christ. I was going to show a clip, and we couldn't get the, the movie clip to work, but uh, it was just funny because, again, I was reading uh, 1 Samuel with my kids, but I thought of the movie Kung Fu Panda. I don't know if you've seen Kung Fu Panda or not, but, uh, but it reminded me of the story of David and Goliath. In Kung Fu Panda, there's, a, there's our hero, Poe, and historically, uh, fictional pandas are really bad at Kung Fu uh, because they're built like me, and, and Poe doesn't lack in confidence, but he lacks in kung fu ability <laughs> and so he goes and he starts training and he's got all this false bravado and then he realizes hey i'm not very good at this <laughs> but poe has an identity poe is the dragon warrior and so as he goes through the movie you know he, he ends up getting trained in this and he has this huge opportunity at the end of the movie to fight goliath to fight this villain named tai lung and tai lung has whipped everybody and he's got everybody scared and poe's gonna go fight him and, and they fight and poe is winning and Tai Lung says to Poe, you can't defeat me. You're just a big, fat panda. And Poe says, oh, no, no, no. I'm the big, fat panda. Poe understood in the fight who he was. And I wonder, is, is that exactly what David had? He went into the fight overmatched, carrying some sticks, but he knew who he was. Isn't that how we're supposed to go into all our trials and all our fights? If we lose sight of who we are in Christ, we totally forget all the resources we have at our disposal. When Saul wanted David to go in and fight Goliath, he was going to give him his armor because that was what he trusted in. David was able to go face Goliath with a slingshot because that was everything he needed. 
because he put his faith and his trust in God, not the slingshot. I've been guilty of this in my life, I'm just telling you honestly. I lack strength or wisdom or passion or whatever it is, something for the the thing that God has in my path, and I forget as a Christ follower that I have the Holy Spirit inside me. I think one of the most phenomenal verses in all Scripture, Romans 8, verse 11, such a great reminder of the resources that we possess. Paul writes, but if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the Holy Spirit that I have as a resource. Seriously, what could I not accomplish for God's glory if I'd claim that? If I'd just remember that? But I forget it. God, ten years ago, reminded me of this so powerfully, and I still forget it. I remember 10 years ago, a couple houses ago, we lived in a house uh, right out by the golf course, and our, ho- our yard was just covered with rocks. I mean, there was grass that grew, but there were rocks everywhere. And so I'd just have five-gallon buckets laying around. Every time we're out in the yard, kids would be picking up rocks, throwing them in it. And I remember being out there one day, and we're picking up rocks, and my boy Gavin, who's 13 now, he's three at the time, he was working on a rock, and I was standing by him, and I'm picking up rocks, and he's working on a rock. And you know how sometimes... It looks like a little rock, and you go down and pick it up, but it's a big rock. <laughs> it's buried way down deep in there. So he gets there, and he's starting to, to work around on it, and he's got a little shovel. I still remember this picture. And he's digging around. It, it, the more he digs, the bigger it is. And he can't get it. And he gets frustrated. He's three, you know, and it, he starts crying. He just can't get this rock. He's been working at it. And so as a good parent, I sat there and watched him. And, uh, and I, I watched him until he broke. And I, this was God. This was totally God in me because I didn't, I didn't even see this coming. But, but I watched him until he broke, and he gives up. And I went over there, and I said, hey, buddy, is that one too big for you? And he's crying. He goes, yeah, that one's too big. And I said, hey, did you use everything you had? And he's looking at his little shovel going, well, yeah. <laughs> so I was digging. And I, and I, again, this had to be from God. I said, did you use everything you had? He says, yeah. And I said, no. It's because I'm standing right here. I got a big shovel, and I'm about eight times your size. I can get that rock. And I showed him. I dug it right out. Isn't that the same thing that we do, though? We want to tackle and beat on our little problem, and we don't ask God. I've said this. I've heard people say this. Oh, all we can do now is pray. Why didn't we do, why didn't we do that at the start? <laughs> if we just prayed at the start, God might have never had to have us mess with the stuff and teach us through the trial. Instead, we allow our problems to shape who we are, and then they become our identity. We don't have to do that. Here's what Peter says, verse 3. We have everything we need. He says God has granted us to it, it to us. And the verb granted, the way he uses it, it's in the perfect tense in Greek. So it means an action that has happened in the past, but it'll have continuing results in the future. And then in verse 4, Peter tells us what God's greatest desire is for each one of us. And it's not comfort. And it's not health. And it's not wealth. And it's not expensive toys. It's that we would be with him. That we would be partakers of his divine nature. We'd abide in him and and grow to be more and more like him. I think what Peter's trying to explain is if we allow our lusts, if we allow the things we think we want to pull us away, and we start to develop an identity in those things, then we'll be ineffective and useless. We won't look any different from the world around us. And I think that Christ can really teach us something here about our identity. So much of the time we tend to think we are who we are because of what we've experienced. 
And to an extent, that's true. You don't live in a vacuum. I mean, the things that happen, you, you bring with you. But in Christ, what he, Peter's saying here is, even in the bad circumstances, you have everything you need to make good decisions. By God's grace, I haven't had a drink of alcohol in over 13 years. That's totally God. But when I was a practicing alcoholic, could I blame that on my mom? Because she was an alcoholic. And whenever I was around her, there was a lot of alcohol around, and she let me drink when I was underage. So really, it's not my fault. It's my mom's fault, right? No. <laughs> That's not what Scripture says. The Bible's really clear. We're responsible for our own sins, for our own choices. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20 and 25. Romans chapter 2, verse 6. Romans chapter 14, verse 12. Many, many other verses. I made the choices to drink. Now, growing up, it was easier because the stuff was around, but it was still my choice. I think we tend to believe that this horrible place that we live in, this horrible world, it's fallen, it's bad, so it's a bad world, and then I have bad thoughts, and those bad thoughts lead to bad actions. But Peter flips that notion here. He says, hey, the problem we have is internal. It's our evil desires that produce the actual wickedness we see around us. James says the same thing. I'm going to jump forward a little bit, but we'll get to this in a few months in detail. In James chapter 4, in verses 1 to 4, this is just a little preview. James 4, verse 1 says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And when you ask, you ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Wherever Scripture addresses this, it's pretty clear. The problem is me. The problem is us because of our sin nature. It's our selfishness. It's our pleasures. It's our desires. And, and when we finally are broken of that, when we finally see that it's us, that's when we can respond to the gospel message. Because the gospel message really deals with that. It says God made us, so we're accountable to him. But we have this problem. We have this sin problem. And all the results of it, the corruption of lust, Peter says, the pleasures and lusts and wrong motives, that James talks about it. But God has a solution to that problem. And it's in his son, Jesus Christ. It's his sinless life his death and resurrection in my place where he conquered sin and death on the cross, his kingdom that will have no end, his kingdom that we can and will be part of if we respond in faith. Of course, as believers, I think we look at the last part of that in James 4 and we look at the world around us and we go the other way. We say, oh, the, the world is so horrible, so broken, so depraved, which it is, and we just develop this monastery theology. Well, what I'll do is I'll just withdraw. The best thing to do is just separate from the world. I don't know if you remember the video last year. I thought it was so funny. We did, uh, we were promoting our mission statement, the idea of knowing him and making him known. And we shot a little video, and it was right up here on stage, and it was Dan and Ryan and Andy and Robin. And they had a little private worship service. You remember that? And they were real quiet. And the big tagline out of it was, we four, no more, and shut the door. And it's funny and horribly wrong. But, but the idea is, if that was our church, it could still go bad. Even with four, e even with one. As soon as you have one person in, it can go bad. History has shown us this. Monasteries, cults, 
tons of civic organizations, lots of churches. They duplicate the problems that exist in culture and society around us. Greed, hypocrisy, pride, sexual sin. Why? Because they mess up and they let people in. As soon as people are in it, we bring our baggage along and we bring these internal things with us. And what Peter is talking about is the fact that God has given us the provision, the direction, the resources to be able to change those circumstances around us from the inside out. We can figure out how to deal with the fallout of living in this broken and fallen world because God's given us everything we need. But to live differently, when I mess up, i got to say, yep, that was me. I'll own that. It wasn't anybody else's fault. And, and to be entirely honest, most of the time, the biggest thing God saves me from is me. It's my depravity. It's my evil desires. Now, Scripture says, and I 100% agree, Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, in context, that whole chapter is about relationships, kind of specifically family relationships. And just a couple verses before that, Paul encourages us to remember who we are and our identity. He says, hey, lean in on God's strength, not on your own. Well, what he's saying is, hey, you fight with your mom or your dad or your wife or your husband or your brother or whatever. And he says, the real fight is not with them. They're not the real enemy. But we think it is, and so we lash out and we get defensive and we try to hurt people that we really love. Paul's saying the enemy is Satan. He hates family. He hates relationship. And so if your family and your relationships are going well, you know he's going to pick at it. But here's the reality. Here's just the truth. Satan's not as powerful as God. I should get an amen. Satan's not as powerful as God. He's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He doesn't read our thoughts and, and know our hearts. He does have a bunch of helpers. He's got a bunch of wicked people. Paul refers to them here, the world forces of darkness. So you grumble and complain about your marriage or your crazy uncle or your brothers or sisters or whatever, and somehow that gets back to Satan. But he's not reading your mind. And here's the deal. I totally get this, and I believe it. I know that I have an enemy in Satan. I know there are dark forces. All believers do. But here's the sad truth for myself. I think a lot of times Satan doesn't even have to worry about me because I get in my own way. I don't even need him to come pick me off because I forget who I am in Christ. And when I do that, I become useless and unfruitful for the kingdom. And why is Satan going to worry about me then? I've short-circuited myself. And Peter tells us it's not supposed to be that way. Because we walk in faith, we have everything we need to show evidence of fruit in our lives. If we display those qualities, those virtues that he's talking about, and they, they increase in our lives, then we won't be stagnant. We won't be unfruitful. We won't be blind or short-sighted. We won't forget who we are in Christ. I love the C.S. Lewis book, The Screw Tape Letters, and one of the reasons I love it, there's an incredible definition of identity in Christ that Lewis shares in one of the conversations between the senior demon, Screwtape, and, and Wormwood. Here's the quote. It says, When God talks of people losing themselves, he means only abandoning the clamor of self-will. Once they've done that, he really gives them back their personality. And he boasts, I'm afraid sincerely, that when they're wholly his, they'll be more themselves. That's a good identity. When we're wholly his, we're more ourselves. Do you know what your identity is? 
If you know that you're not a Christ follower, you can claim your identity in Christ today by losing yourself, by abandoning that clamor of self-will. You can stop trying to save yourself. You can totally lean in on God and trust Him to save you. If you need to do that, I pray that you do it today. I pray that you'll come talk to me before you leave this service. Talk to somebody that you know knows Jesus. Find that person. But here's the deal. If you're here and you walk with Christ, then we're going to get a chance to examine our hearts. And if we see no fruit, we don't look any different from the world around us, then we need to remember who we are. We need to reclaim our identity in Christ so we can start displaying those virtues. So we can show the world evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. We'll have the opportunity to close the service that way today by taking communion together. If you're visiting with us, we've got communion set up at the station down here, and Ryan's going to come up and he's going to play some music, and you'll have some time to do exactly what Scripture says, to examine your heart, confess your sins, be right with Him. And so, certainly, this is the Lord's Supper, not Kate Bible Chapel's Supper. Take the time to do that. Come. And when you're ready, participate. But I want to guide you just a little bit as, as we go because this is the question that's on my heart as I, as I go to communion. What if I'm looking at my own life and I say, how can I love God so much? How can I love God as much as I say that I do and still look at my life and see it ineffective sometimes? If I love God with all my heart, why don't I look different from the world? I read a story one time and actually I forgot the book that I read it in. I'm stealing this story, but I thought it was a good one. Guy, guy said, you know, what if I got a phone call from the bank. It was a bank officer, and he said, hey, you, you probably didn't know this. You had a distant relative. They were a billionaire. They left you $50 million. And you went down to the bank, and you filled out all the paperwork, and you brought your forms of identity. And, and sure enough, it was true. And now, all of a sudden, you're a multimillionaire. And what if you go home, and you live like you've always lived? A few months down the road, you're still scrimping paycheck to paycheck, and you're really struggling. If I knew you and knew you well, wouldn't I come to you and go, hey, aren't you like a gazillionaire? <laughs> Don't you have riches beyond measure? And what if you said to me, well, yeah, but man, to get down there to the bank is so much trouble. That bank's way across town, and man, there's not hardly any parking, and it's real crowded when you go in there. They treat you like a thief. They take your thumbprint. They make you fill all this stuff out. It's just such a hassle. So, well, hey, you know, you could do your banking online, or you can call in, oh, I don't trust that. You know, that's, I, don't, I, don't, I don't need any of that. But isn't that goofy? But I think a lot of times that's what we do. We're spiritually rich. We have everything we need for life and godliness, but we act like paupers in our lives. It's not right. And if it's happening, it's because we've forgotten who we are in Christ. And we need to remember, we need to understand God's given us everything we need for life and godliness to show evidence of faith in our lives. And so, so let's get it. Salvation's not simply about being forgiven of our sins. That's a glorious thing. But it's about who we are then in Christ. It's this new identity we have. If we understand that, then there's no excuses for not putting feet to our faith. We pray for our times we take communion. Father God, you are good and you are sovereign and your plan is perfect for our lives. God, help us not to live as paupers. 
if we're spiritually rich. God, if we know you, help us to look different in this world. God, if there are those here today who don't know you, God, I pray that they respond in faith to the fact that your greatest desire is that they would be with you and be partakers of the divine nature, as Peter wrote. God, we lift the bread and the cup to you as we get the opportunity to truly symbolically be one with you as we take the elements. God, we love you. Let's give this service to you today and we ask all those things in Jesus' name. Interposed his precious blood. 